I want to remind you that when you see a homeless person, remember they are suffering. Remember they have a family that carried a heavy heart. The world can be a scary place, but there is light shining from those who are working to help people like my mom. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we have Tim Landis Jr. Tim is a Tulsa People reporter, and he also hosts the magazine's podcast. We asked Tim to be on the show today because he has courageously shared the story of his own mother, who experienced homelessness for years. And we asked Wendy Fralick, our chief administrative officer, to do the interview with Tim because she knows the story so well. So let's get right to it. The mental health download starts now. Well, Tim, first, I would like to welcome you to Mental Health Download. Thanks so much for joining us today. I know that you are a digital editor with Tulsa People Magazine and have a blog titled Tim Landis Jr. On this blog, you share the honest trials and tribulations you have endured with a mom who has experienced homelessness and mental illness. I would love to start today by reading you an excerpt from one of your blogs. Would you be okay with that? Yes. So this passage is from your blog post crazy. I was born in the early 80s to two teenage parents. Having a 14-year-old mom and a 17-year-old dad really impacted me. Somewhere very early in life, I decided I would not repeat the pattern. Talk to me about being born into a family of two young kids. (laughs) Yeah, it was was crazy. I don't know if, like, it took me a while to catch on, obviously, because... Uh, being a kid, you're just like there with your parents, you know, and my parents were super young, obviously. So um, I grew up with MTV, uh, you know, everything else that comes with a teenager's life. Yeah, just being there. Um, And my parents split by the time I was five. Um, so from there on, I had two households to go to and, um, you know, it really didn't start sinking in until I got a little older and started realizing it. And by the time I got to eighth grade and had surpassed my parents' education level, or at least my mom's, you know, at that point. So I was doing algebra and learning it on my own and everything. Um, but by the time I got to high school and I graduated and I realized that, you know, my mom's only 32 and I'm 18. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, it was uh, something I picked up on as I got older, um, you know, and of course the jokes and everything at school about teenage moms and everything that was there. So that's when I kind of became more cognizant of what was going on. In another one of your blogs, you talk about you think your dad wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. And I've seen pictures of your dad on your blog, mm-hmm. which are amazing. Yeah. Uh, just tell me about that. Tell me about your relationship with your dad. Uh, you know, it was, it was great. Uh, initially when I was a little kid, he was, you know, the dad and, uh, we would jam out together. I had a Fraggle Rock plastic guitar and he had a Gibson Les Paul. We would act like we were playing Van Halen together around the time of jump. That was like my song jumping off the fireplace and everything. Um, when I got a little bit older, he became my baseball coach, something that, um, I know, I believe that he did to connect with me and, you know, for us to build a relationship uh, we were, you know, typical father-son relationship uh, until uh, I got older. And then once I got through college and everything, we kind of became like even better friends than we had been before. And actually even a lot closer uh, with time. So, And then talk about your relationship with your mom as you were a kid. 
Uh, yeah, my mom was stay at home, uh, so I saw her all the time. She was a huge reader, um, and that was something she pushed off on me. And I don't know if she did it intentionally or if it was just seeing her read all the time did something for me, but it really motivated me to become a reader. And I think it was something that we connected on. But we were uh, we were always really close, uh, when, especially when I was younger. Um, and I think because of the fact that she was always at home, uh, taking care of us and everything. So I saw her and my parents had equal custody. Like it was split when they, when they separated uh, and they never got married or anything. So like I'd go every Wednesday, Thursday and every other weekend to my dad's. And then the rest of the time was with my mom. Um, in the summer I spent almost every day with her, you know, around the house, everything, if I wasn't out playing, but definitely spent a ton of time with her growing up. So it sounds like in your childhood years, it wasn't a bad life. You managed to make this work with your family. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I put more thought into it as I've gotten older and stuff and you realize things like, I mean, they were teenagers. They, you know, they wanted to party and have a good time. And I was around drug culture my entire life. And I say drugs as in marijuana, which I don't really consider a drug uh, anymore. But um, but yeah, at the time, I mean, I was around that, you know, the partying and stuff. Um, and it was like every night, you know, around bedtime, they would light up and stuff. And so it's kind of like that change, you know, like I realized until in this past year, how much that impacted me, you know, just trying to be the whole, like, I'm in my bedroom and I have to like make a loud noise if I want to come out of my bedroom to go to the restroom or anything. So they could stash things, even <laughs> though the whole house smelled like it, there's probably a layer of fog, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, but that was that was my childhood. My mom's friends were in the drug culture. So like we were hanging out with their kids, you know, and there were people coming and going at these houses and stuff. It was just second nature to me. I didn't really put weight into it or realize what I was living through until I got older. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I'd love to read another excerpt from your blog post, The Daunting Process It Takes to Stop Being Homeless. So you're homeless. You've hit rock bottom. You've burned every bridge, eviscerated every relationship. You're sitting in a field in North Tulsa with no money. It's pushing the upper 90s. The few pairs of underwear and socks you recently purchased have been stolen along with most of your possessions, including your social security card. You have no food other than the two pieces of bread and some warm, days-old deli meat. There are blisters on your feet, so it hurts to walk, but you have no other choice. Those are just some of the many challenges faced by those who are homeless. The above story is my mom's, and I'm sure many others. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about where things changed in life and how your mom became homeless. That's a good question. Uh, in the 90s, she had my brother premature. He's my half-brother, but basically brother. Um, she had him premature in 91. And then shortly after that, she became basically a zombie. She was prescribed by psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever, multiple uh, mind-altering drugs to help her with diagnosed mental illnesses that she had at the time or mental issues. And then uh, by the time I graduated high school, I briefly moved in with my dad full-time uh, just because of housing reasons. You know, my little brother was getting bigger. We had a small house, so he got his own room. I went with my dad, went to Rogers State, uh, for basics and then transferred to OSU. And when I did that, things started to change. Uh, the culture that she was in, her husband at the time, my stepdad and my brother, his dad, um, he turned to meth and started getting involved more in that. And suddenly, I don't even know when it was, but my mom, I think experimented with more drugs maybe, uh, but definitely got into alcohol. And I know by the time my brother was in high school, she was drinking like a liter of vodka a day. Um, and she had never drank when I was growing up. I'd seen her drink maybe a handful of 
uh, wine coolers for the first 20 years of my life. You know, but I never really saw her drink anything. So um, just chain smoke cigarettes, Marlboro Reds. Um, but yeah, uh, there from there, uh, as the empty nest, my brother went to the Navy. It got worse. Um, and her relationship with uh, my former stepdad got worse. Um, and so everything just progressively kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then um, she entered, she um, went to jail uh, right after Christmas of 2012. And that's when everything kind of escalated. And from there, it just it got worse over this past decade. And um, she became homeless a couple of years ago, but she was in Claremore. And so she didn't come into Tulsa until last year. Okay. So she's been homeless for a couple of years now. And talk about the difficulties that she's had to endure and that you've had to endure through this experience. Yeah. um, I can't even imagine or fathom what all she's been through. I don't know it all. I know a lot of it. Um, I recently had to go pick her up uh, from downtown Tulsa at five o'clock in the afternoon from behind the emergency infant services dumpsters where she had been raped. Um, and this was just like a Wednesday afternoon at five o'clock. I know she's been sexually assaulted and raped multiple times. Um, I know she's been physically abused. She was nearly strangled to death last year, uh, by her on and off again, boyfriend who is now in prison. That's another story, but, um, I mean, we can get to that later if we need to, but, um, yeah. So, um, the stuff that she went through, you know, not having food, not having shelter, all those things. Um, the loneliness. I mean, it just, I could go on for days on all the tough stuff that someone goes through when they're homeless. That, from what I've seen with her. Um, for me, it became harder because I couldn't really, felt like I couldn't really do anything. And, you know, there's only so much one can do. I felt like being supportive, kind of becoming a case manager for her was the best thing I could do to help. But, you know, I was recently reading Nick Sheff's book, Who Wrote Beautiful Boy. And something that stuck with me in that was he was talking about how um, addicts, and he didn't say homeless, but uh, he talked about how addicts can often use a substance to turn off, kind of numb what they're going through, um, to get them through that night or whatever, which I'm sure that uh, my mom has done. Um, But for me, you know, being the support person, you can't shut that off. And so you're constantly, you know, if they're out there getting numbing the pain with whatever uh, substance, uh, you know, I'm back at home just wondering, is she okay? Well, she's probably passed out in the field in North Tulsa, you know, with a bottle of vodka or whatever. She's snoozing and I'm losing sleep over it. And it's hard to relay that message, you know, back to her and get her to understand that, of course, because what she's going through is a million times worse than I've ever been through. You even talk about a short-lived marriage that you had, and you thought the stresses of your family life impacted that. You want to chat about that for a minute? Yeah. So growing up, like I was extremely secretive about everything in my life. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. Like You rattle off the list, and that's how I felt. And so even my closest friends had no idea what I was going through in my life. I just kept it a secret. Like I was the jovial, happy Tim that's doing things, you know? Um, no one really knew much about it. They knew more about my dad. I, some closer friends later told me that they, like, um, they realized the, how little I talked about my mom for a long period of time. And then when she went to jail, she went to jail on some weird charges that didn't even hold up. Um, But when she did, she was in jail for, I think it was like 50-something days in Rogers County. And every night at almost 9 o'clock, I would make sure I was at home or someplace where I could do the 15-minute phone call. 
uh, that you have to pay, you know, to call in and do. And I did that. And those stresses there, obviously, but like probably a week or two before my wedding, I uh, was with two friends of mine and I broke down and just opened up about everything. It was like a major info dump on them. And they were just stunned and shocked that, you know, what was going on in my life and how I'd been carrying it inside without really, you know, talking to anybody about it. And obviously that compounds things. And I think that um, because of everything that was going through there and the constant stresses, I don't think I was healthy enough mentally to really devote myself to a marriage. Um you know, going through everything else I did, uh, there was other stuff involved too there, some work stuff, but it all kind of compounded all in one. And, um, it's so it, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really hard. And I joke that like when I got married, it was like Bruce Wayne telling someone he was Batman. That's what it felt like. It was just something you didn't talk about to, or I didn't talk about to anybody. And so when I did that and opened up, you know, it obviously changed a little bit for me, but, um, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, I honestly believe that a lot of um, a lot of stuff that went on was because of, you know, how I poorly handled some of the stuff with my family. And all that you're talking about, one thing that I keep going back to is how your life was going as all of this stuff was going on around you. Right. Can you share what was going on in your life, how you were on a trajectory toward a career and you got your college education yeah. and... Yeah. So, um, like I said, I, um, or like you mentioned earlier on, uh, how I wanted to be different than my parents. Like when I was in high school, I like buckled down. I was, I was an honors and enrichment student. I was, you know, straight A's the last half of high school. I, um, didn't really party much. I started to a little bit, but I didn't have sex or anything because I was so terrified of repeating the pattern. And so I did everything I could, you know, buckle down, read a lot, study a lot, because I wanted to be successful. And I wanted to be, I became the first person in my family to get a college degree. Uh, and so that was a huge driving force for me. And I wanted to be self-sustainable. I had seen most of my family rely on other family members to survive. And I didn't want that at all. And I didn't want to put that pressure on anyone else. So I knew if I could take care of myself, then I would be okay. And then maybe I could help the others in some way. But, um, yeah, it really came down to kind of a survival of the fittest, taking care of myself thing for a long time. And then you talk about the trajectory that you made from public relations into being a writer for Tulsa People. You want to talk about that a bit more yeah, and how so, you made that change? Um, towards those last couple of years there, things got really tough with my mom and Obviously, a part of the deal, I didn't handle it that well. Uh, mentally, for me, I didn't know what to do or how I could do anything. I just felt the weight and the stress on my shoulders and everything. And it definitely impacted my job and everything else in life. And coincidentally, I was kind of burnt out on PR anyway. I just, I love journalism. And I had started freelance writing for Tulsa People. And they passed along an assignment, not knowing what I was going through, of course. But they passed around an or they sent me an assignment on... Um, five people who were working to, you know, solve homelessness in Tulsa. And so when they did that story and I met people like Noe Rodriguez uh, and Mac and Noe, you know, just went over to work with Mac at the day center. Uh, when I met them and talked to them, you know, I didn't tell anybody else, but to me, I realized like, holy cow, there's something here. And it gave me kind of a confidence and boost uh, to move forward with it. And then, uh, for me, it was very cathartic to sit down and write what I was going through personally and share that with the world. And 
when I originally wrote my first post uh, for my website uh, titled My Mom is Homeless, when I wrote that, it was actually a whole different feeling and emotion to it. It had been written the weekend before, and it was that I was completely hopeless. And I was asking the world for help. And the Sunday before I published that or so, uh, my mom contacted me. And for the first time, she said she wanted help. And I hadn't published that story yet, so I agreed. And that's when I like, went and picked her up in North Tulsa, and I took her to the day center to let her meet Marsha, get a case manager there, and tried to get the ball rolling there. Um, but when I wrote that piece, I don't know why. I just assumed it would be in a small bubble that my friends would see. I didn't anticipate that hundreds to thousands of people would read that post. And so like when I published it, I immediately shut my computer off. I shut my phone off and I went and tried to take a nap. And I was like, I'm just going to get away from this. And so when I opened everything and powered everything back up and I just saw the hundreds of comments, the hundreds of text messages and everything, it was mind blowing to me. But the coolest thing about it was that I had really close friends of mine who are in highly professional jobs that, you know, in high ranking positions that had similar stories and they hadn't shared that with anyone. And so I started getting people that were messaging me, sharing with their sharing me, sharing with me their stories about their family members who were homeless or, you know, a sibling or a person they had dated or something. And then people started opening up to me about their mental health issues or stuff that they have going on that they didn't know who to talk to about. So inadvertently I started learning about all of these other people I knew and all of the stuff that they had going on in their lives. And so every time I've written something, I have received more and more private messages from people, some from people I've never met, that still just want to tell me like what's going on in their life and how much my writing means to them. You've talked about how you engaged your mom with the day center, mm-hmm. and then they had some needs in order to try to get her into housing. And you talk about all the places you had to go with yeah. her to meet those needs and how difficult that is for people who are homeless. Can you tell us about that situation? Yeah. Um, the way Tulsa set up now, we're set up to ensure that homeless folks have almost an impossible way of getting back on their feet. And it's shocking and sad. Um, with my mom, she didn't have her ID. She didn't have a birth certificate on or anything. All she had in her possession was her Cherokee Nation citizenship ID. And a lot of the state services... They don't accept that ID. They still want a state photo ID, even though you can use a Cherokee Nation photo ID to board a plane, but you have to have a second or, you know, with the real ID issue with Oklahoma driver's license and stuff, it's kind of funny that that's the reverse here. Um, but the bigger problem is the way that it's set up. So if you don't have those things, you have to figure out how to go from probably North Tulsa or downtown, and you have to go to Almost Broken Arrow to the health department to get a birth certificate. And then you have to go to the former Eastland Mall to uh, the Department of Transportation where you fill out paperwork and everything to get an ID. And then you have to go to a tag office because they can't issue it there. So then you have to find a tag office. Um, And of course, there's one a few miles away in Catoosa that I knew about uh, to take her there. But if you're relying on public transportation to get to those places, the way our public transportation is set up now, it takes almost a whole day for someone to go from downtown to 41st and Yale to go to the bank. I know that because my mom was just doing it today. Um, and so for someone to try to piece those things together, 
you know, it's nearly impossible to do it on your own unless you have someone who can give you a ride and is patient enough to go through all the because it's a waiting game everywhere you go on top of that. And plus the money, uh, you have to pay for the ID. You have to pay for that. And I will say the homeless or the day center, they do help out with that, but it's a longer period. Like it takes, like think a couple of weeks and they'll pay for half the price or all the price for you, like get your birth certificate to get that ball rolling. But it's a waiting game. And when you tell someone, I'm going to try to help you not be homeless, everything be come sit and wait, but you have this urgency to you. Like, I want to get this fixed. And here we are, you know, a year later, and we're finally, I feel like getting somewhere, hopefully. As we continue to talk about the struggles that your mom has faced, you also share that she was in an abusive relationship and that she would call you incessantly for Mm -hmm. help. Can you share more about that and what that meant as it related to her and her movement toward trying to get out of homelessness and what it meant for you as her support system? Yeah, it was, um, it was really hard. They, the reason she became homeless was because she had been in an abusive relationship where she kept going back to the guy or letting him stay with her or whatever it was. And they lived in an apartment complex in Catoosa. And so obviously alcohol was involved a lot of times and she would feel more comfortable, I guess, reaching out to me a lot, calling me when she was intoxicated. And it became like she would tell me things about my childhood and stuff that I didn't know before. It became really tough at times. And I became kind of distant to her. And the more like I kept trying to talk her into like, you've got to leave this guy. And she wouldn't leave him. And so it became kind of this deal where I was like, okay, you know, like most people would do in that situation. You kind of distance yourself from that stuff when you can't do anything. And because the police kept showing up, the apartment uh, manager evicted her. And from once you get an eviction on your record, you're kind of, uh, you know, for lack of better words, screwed. Um, because of that. So uh, that's really where it started there. Um, but once she got evicted, it was she bounced around a few places from couch to couch and stuff. But she was in places that didn't have power, that didn't have running water and stuff. And she was just finding places that she could stay. Um, and eventually she wore out her welcome in some of those places where things went bad. And she ended up uh, with the guy that she'd been evicted living with. Uh, she ended up with him in North Tulsa. And it progressively uh, got worse there. And I vividly remember last summer when I told her, you know, we were coming back from a court hearing and I mentioned to her that she was eventually going to have to choose between her family or kids and the, uh, and the guy she was dating at the time because I felt like he was going to kill her. And coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, that night she hung out with him and he nearly strangled her to death. Um, and so that kind of um, made things even crazier for a little bit because then I got to see that side of uh, how we handle homelessness, uh, specifically in Tulsa, when it comes to those type of things. And I know that you had these calls more than once. Yeah. And it felt like at one point, I can't step in anymore. I can't do this anymore. So again, as a family member, tell me how that feels and how that hopelessness begins to wreak havoc on that relationship. Oh my gosh, it's gut-wrenching. Yeah, I, I... It's hard to put into words like how sick and sad a person can feel because of that, because it really is. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to the person's choices and decisions they make. And no matter what you do to try to help someone, they have to be willing to accept that and make changes for themselves. 
And at that time, uh, there was none of that. And so it took everything I had. Like, like I said, there were times when I would distance myself and not talk. And um, it wasn't just phone calls. There were some nights when I would get uh, 30 to 40, uh, 50 text messages in 15 minutes. And some nights it would be 100. Like it would just go nonstop. And a lot of times it was the same stuff over and over again. And there's still some of those days, but it's not, it hasn't been as bad lately. But, you know, you want to listen to them and you want to be there for them. But at the same time, when it feels like a broken record and you're hearing the same, what you consider nonsense uh, over and over again, it just makes it frustrating and hard. And it's easy to understand uh, how people burn bridges and lose contact with everyone because there's this, like I said, there's this weight and there's this helplessness that you can't do anything for them. Uh, all you can do is hope to be an ear to listen or something, and they accept that. And a lot of times I think they want more than that, and you just can't do that. So, um, yeah, there become questions of, uh, for my mental health, do I continue talking or do I – and I've had friends that did that, I learned. And talking to them, you know, some of their family members have passed away who were homeless, and the guilt they feel afterward for not doing enough – is there. And I think that in the position that uh, a support person is for someone who is homeless or maybe really bad off in addiction, um, I think either way, you're just always going to feel some sort of guilt or question yourself on what could I have done differently that could have helped. Um, and there are no answers to that. It's just a weird, it's, I don't know, it's, it's really a weird, weird feeling. And it's not a fun one, I can tell you that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's just absolutely gut-wrenching. We hear it from family members all the time, but to hear you put it in words, hopefully this brings solace to others that are listening yeah. that are going through this situation. You mentioned your blog post, My Mom is Homeless. I would love to read you an excerpt from that one. I want to remind you that when you see a homeless person, remember they are suffering. Remember they have a family that carried a heavy heart. The world can be a scary place but there is light shining from those who are working to help people like my mom. I can only hope this time she accepts it and works hard to become self-sufficient. She's a great woman. She has been through a lot and made a lot of terrible decisions. Everybody loves a comeback. I'm just hoping it's finally her turn. Where's your mom now? She is uh, at the Altamont apartment building downtown. Talk to us about how that happened, how that transpired. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's weird how the world works sometimes. I, uh, you know, when I was at school at Rogers State, I had a philosophy class, and uh, one of the students uh, in the class with me was Ashley Gunnels. And she, uh, we've stayed in touch all this time. And this summer, she started working at uh, here at the Oklahoma Mental Health Association. And, um, I had written a story. She had interned for Noe last year, and that kind of bumped things up between her and I and talking about things. And uh, this summer, with things going bad, my mom had been turned down in rapid rehousing program because of the eviction and everything. And um, it was back to the same thing of where she was talking about killing herself and everything else. And finally, I reached out to Ashley, and I was like, hey, I need help. What can we do? You know, I'm let's do something. Let's get going here. And Credit to her. I mean, her heart is so huge that she was like, all right, let's talk. Let's get this going. And she really, I felt like she pushed it up. And then, uh, you know, I it, about five years ago, I started on the board of directors for the Lindsay House, which is another organization that helps with um, homeless mothers who have children. And when I joined the board at the time, there was a client named Alyssa, and I never met her. 
Uh, but she was a client that we would get every month at the board meeting. We would get a roster of like all the people there and updates on what they were doing from the case manager who was a friend of mine. Um, and so fast forward to just, you know, a couple months ago, my mom gets assigned a case manager through Mill Health Association. And it's Alyssa who had graduated the Lindsay House program that I had, you know, helped whatever way I could, uh, you know, got her through that. And then here she was a few years later as the uh, as the uh, case manager for my mom. And I didn't know this. I didn't put two and two together until uh, we were there for my mom getting the key to the, the apartment at the Altamont and everything. And we were just talking and I mentioned something about me being involved with Lindsay House. And Alyssa looked at me and she was like, you know, I live there, right? And I was like, no, no, I, did, I didn't put two and two together here. And she told me. And then it was just so like mind blowing to see or, you know, to, to realize that I had been there, you know, so these connections that I had built, plus the article I'd written for Tulsa People where I'd met these folks that gave me uh, some courage and strength to move forward with that. All of these pieces somehow in some way fell into place to make this happen just a few weeks ago. The Altamont Apartments, which are owned yeah. by Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. How long has your mom been there now? Uh, she moved in about three weeks ago, mid-August, I think, somewhere right in there. Uh, yeah, so she's been there a few weeks now. It has to feel good. Yeah, you know... Um, it it does. There were like four days this week where I didn't get a text message from her. And I started to wonder, I was like, hmm, should I text her or call her and check in? Or do you not want to poke the 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 bear there? Because I didn't know, you know. And so um, she was doing fine all week, which was great. Uh, there was instantly when she got the key to the place. And I was there uh, when she signed all the paperwork and she went into the room. And when I got in my car, when I left, I instantly felt what felt like probably a thousand pounds or more just fall off my shoulders. And it was the first time in more than a year I felt that. Like I felt a little lighter in my step and it was pretty phenomenal. And even then I knew that we're not done. You know, this isn't the end of the road. Anything can happen. There's still, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that have to happen and, and she has to do a lot of things. And, um, you know, it, it, it's not her dream spot she had built up in her mind, this image of going from homelessness to a house with a yard and everything. And from my work with Lindsay house, I knew that wasn't the either feasible or the best thing to happen. When you've been in an unstructured environment like she has for so long, and she's never really had structure in her life, um, I knew this would be a, a big change for her. And it's something that I knew she would struggle with. And she has, because with the Ultima, it has a 10 p.m. curfew. It, it has other rules in place. And I have to remind her, they're not all there for her. You know, that there are other people there with different issues, but she doesn't see that. She views herself as being one of the people there that has, you know, maybe worse mental issues or other things going on. I have to remind her that, you know, these are people from all walks of life that are just trying to get ahead in life. And um, it's temporary. I have to keep saying that because, I mean, I get it. You know, if you've lived in a house your whole life or your own places your whole life, and now you're put into an apartment building and you've never had that experience, because I keep trying to tell her it's like being in New York. I'm like, oh, your apartment, I know it's small. And I know the window isn't the best view of Tulsa. But it's like there are people in New York that have this size apartment. They're paying 
you know, way more money a month than you are. And this is just a stop on the tour to get you back to where you want to be. Um, and that's, it's still tough. And, you know, I can, I can be a cheerleader all day long on that, but, um, but she has to be the one to, you know, pick up the ball and go with it. And so far as she has, it's, it's a struggle, um, as it, you know, and that's understandable. What do you think are your mom's aspirations now? I know you mentioned the house with the yard, but does she have a plan to get there? I don't know. Um, I think she just expects that the process will take her there a little bit. Now, she is on disability, so she has a fixed income. Uh, there is that. There's, she's limited on the amount of hours she can work. So she talks about wanting to get a part-time job, but she'll never be able to get a full-time job. Um, and so there are limitations there. Uh, you know, right now it's all about getting a dog. Uh, she's had dogs in the past, my whole life, dogs and cats. And she really, you know, she feels super lonely still, even though she's in an apartment and I know the dog would help there. And that's kind of what's on her mind right now, but really still for her right now, it's just getting through each day. And it might seem weird to some when you're like, well, she has housing now, but there's, you know, there's a lot there going on. And, um, yeah, the there's definitely some mental issues there that need to be worked on and fixed. And that's that's kind of where we are now is trying to get her to accept that. Because, you know, if someone told me that, hey, you might be battling depression or something, I'd probably be like, no. And I can say I was in the past. Uh, you know, I went to a therapist for a while to talk about it. Um, and I keep trying to push that on her saying, listen, you know, everybody should go talk to somebody. It's not because you have something wrong with you. You know, we all have stuff we need to work out. And it's good to go to someone that's not your son to vent about things and talk about things because I have my preconceived ideas and stuff because naturally I'm your son. Um, and so trying to get someone to do that when they're terrified of it. And that's understandable too, because when you go to doctors for so long and all they do is prescribe you Loratab and Xanax and everything else to kind of fight that, you're not, to me, you're not really solving anything. You're just kind of finding ways to deal with it. Um, and so that that's the thing, that's where we are now. And it's trying to figure out how to, uh, to encourage her to get her to see that, hey, this has just helped to make you feel better. And I think we're, you know, she's going to need that for sure before the end game, you know, of getting to the spot where she needs to be. You have been so honest about the obstacles and the struggles that you all have faced. If you had your ideal vision for the next five years, where would you like to see your mom in five years? Oh, definitely uh, self-sustainable. And I don't know if that will ever, ever truly be the case. But I mean, that's the dream is that I know that she has her own happy place that she lives in and she has her pets and her garden or whatever. Um, and that I can go over there and have dinner with her or lunch on the weekend or something. Um, and she doesn't feel like she has to reach out to me all the time with her issues and everything. I mean, that's that's the dream is that our conversations can be, you know, one day just be happy, like, hey, you know, what's going on today? What'd you do? You know, what book are you reading? What movie did you see? Instead of the struggles of life every time you talk to someone. So I think uh, ultimately that's what I really hope is that, uh, number one, she has her own home and that she is self-sustainable and mentally there, you know, fully healthy, mentally or as close as she can be. And then to really just feel happiness. That's something I don't think she's fully felt in a really long time. 
How have you been able to find resiliency through all of this? Yeah, so um, yeah, last summer I stopped drinking after almost 20 years. And part of it was because uh, for multiple reasons, uh, mainly burnout of it. But two, I realized that, um, and you know, I wouldn't have thought this ahead of time, but uh, I realized that I was using alcohol as a coping you know, as something to help me get through the day or to get away from things. And I never really spent the time inside my own brain, like really evaluating like what I'd been through in life and how I'd handled it. Uh, and so like that, you know, writing about these things, it was cathartic. I had people say, well, I hope this is cathartic for you. And I can tell you it was uh, because putting that out there and realizing you're not alone is a big thing. Like, you know, and it's the same thing that you know, she's dealing with is feeling alone all the time. And even I felt that, um, for the first time, I really spent the last year addressing things in my life and looking at it, evaluating it and, you know, accepting where I came from and, you know, the things I was running from, um, that happened in the past, all those obstacles and everything. And I realized that I needed to be my strongest self to get through all this and, you know, to maintain a positive outlook. And I figured if, you know, I could do it and then I could show others that, hey, you don't have to rely on these things to help you get through your days. I mean, it's it's great to talk to somebody. It's great to write things down. Uh, it's just great to be open and honest about things. And I think that's something that we all need to do uh, in society is be more open to acceptance of things that people go through and not quick to judge and then be willing to talk about it and also listen to people who want to talk about things that are tough because that was something that was really hard too. Cause when I started opening up to friends, it was hard for them. It made them uncomfortable and they didn't want to talk about those things. So they would try to change the subject and I started calling them out on it because I was like, this isn't fair. Uh, and they realized. And so it's been, it's been really cool because it's made me a stronger and more positive person. Uh, but I can also see it rubbing off on people around me. Um, it's definitely made a lot of my friendships, which are already really strong. It's made them even stronger. And that with family too, some of my family. So what do you hope the future holds for you? Oh, man. You know, I am, I'm in a really good place right now, um, all things considered. And what I hope that I can achieve is to continue to tell stories and be a voice for those who don't have one. Um, something I've learned along the way, and you kind of touched on an excerpt you said earlier about how these are people who have families and, you know, all that. Something I've done and something I've noticed that other friends have done is they all recognize how many homeless there are in Tulsa. Now they see them with their own eye, like, because I think people have a blind spot to homelessness in this town. And so I think talking about that and continuing to put that message out there and the mental health aspect of it. I think those are big things as long as I can continue doing that. And that's a mission of mine is to continue finding ways that hopefully one day I don't have to write about these things. But, you know, I recently sat down and talked to the new housing policy director for the mayor's office to talk about affordable housing. And I'm looking at the eviction courts and I'm looking for stories where I can go. And, you know, I, I told someone the other day that I find myself meddling in the dark and depressing to try to find the light and to try to find the hope to help people. And so that's continually going to be my mission, I think. As long as I can be a journalist and as long as I can write nonfiction, I'm going to mix in some fun stuff in there. But at the end of the day, I'm going to keep pushing forward on helping those who don't have a voice, who feel hopeless and feel alone and just hate their lives out there. And, you know, obviously they won't hear this. Uh, some of them, a lot of them won't probably. Uh, but, 
you know, I'm there fighting for them. And I know a lot of other people are too. And I want to keep telling their stories as well, because there are a lot of great people doing great things in this town. And we've got to stop ignoring that. And we've all got to start talking to each other about it. I love that. When we talk about resiliency in another blog, you talked about your grandmother, Opal Faye Payne, mm-hmm. and what an amazing role model she was for you and really took care of you. Can you talk to me about that relationship and, again, how that may have built resiliency within yourself? Yeah, so my great-grandma, who passed away in November, was 97 years old, and she grew up on her Cherokee allotment land northeast of Claremore, uh, got married in her early 20s and lived on La Prairie in the same house through from before World War II until she passed away in her bed in that bedroom. Um But, you know, she was someone that grew up around the Depression and the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl era. She lived through the the wars um, and was just a really strong woman that lived on a farm. I mean, they were pretty much self-sustainable for up until around the time I was born, a little bit after that in the 80s when they got too old, really. Uh, But she was the... Um, the treasurer for her church up until she passed away. She would still drive a few miles here and there. Um, But just a really strong woman that she raised a lot of the family. Uh, Other kids, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles, like she raised them uh, out there on the farm. And uh, she was no BS all the time, but she was the biggest heart I've ever seen. And she really cared about uh, everybody she met. And, you know, that all that stuff inadvertently rubs off on you. And I didn't realize how much she impacted my life. Uh, you know, I saw how the Cherokee Nation helped her when she got older and my great-grandpa passed away. And so that was part of the reason I went to work for the Cherokees was because I wanted to pay back for what they had done for her. And it turned into a 10-year job that was great. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, it's just it was phenomenal. Uh, the life she lived being so simple in a little farmhouse out in the prairie, Uh, It's really, it was something special. And I was really fortunate to have her as a a great grandma. I love that. So you've talked about this a bit. I would love for you to summarize it. What advice would you give to others who are struggling with a loved one who is experiencing homelessness, a mental illness, and or a substance use disorder? Yeah, I would say you're not alone. Um, The days are tough. Uh, You deal with a lot of tough stuff. And you'd feel like you don't want to open up and talk to other people about it. But that's what I say you have to do. You have to have those uncomfortable conversations. And I think for people, if you know someone who has a loved one who's going through stuff like this, um, through addiction or, you know, homelessness, reach out to them and just, you know, be willing to be an ear. You don't have to have the answers for them. Half the time it's just listening to them and trying to get them to open up. Because once you do that, I think the ball starts rolling. Um, but yeah, don't don't feel bad about asking for help for anybody. Um, there are a lot of services out there that uh, that are trying in different ways to help, and so you know, investigating those and reaching out to people. I have been lucky enough to find you know everybody has been really willing to help, and so those people are out there. So if you're struggling with something, talk about it. Don't try to bury it. Don't try to hide it with some sort of substance or something else to push it aside, deal with it. Because at the end of the day, it's going to make everything better for you and then probably for those around you. How can people find your blog? Uh, Tim Landis Jr., which is J-R, not spelled out, 
T-I-M-L-A-N-D-E-S-J-R.com. And then I also do a lot of writing for Tulsa People. Uh, and you go to TulsaPeople.com. Uh, you can search homelessness there and find it or uh, reach out to me. Uh, I'm on social media and everything else. So I'm happy to talk to anybody. And I'm always looking for stories. So if anybody has a compelling story or anything else involving these issues, I'm always willing to share those with people to help out. So never hesitate to reach out to me. And I will talk to anybody because, you know, I get it. And so, yeah, if you have something, just, you know, hey, shoot me an email. Like, hey, you know, I have a question. Um, uh, I will help as much as I can. I also want to remind people that if they are also struggling with family members that are engaged with homelessness or mental illness or substance disorders to please call the association. We are here to help. We're here to provide resources. And I can't thank you enough for your time and for sharing your story. It's been really impactful for me. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on here. And again, thank you to you and your staff, because I know you guys are doing work that goes underappreciated and is extremely important for the health and vitality of our city and its citizens. So I really appreciate everything you guys are doing and congratulations on this podcast. I look forward to listening to it for a long time.